0: Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. This episode is my third in a mini series focusing on the scholarship of the 2019 Sacred Rights cohort. Sacred Rights provides support, resources, and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I highly recommend checking out their fantastic work on Twitter at sacred underscore rights or online at sacred rights.org. So if you have listened to at least a few episodes of this show, you will know the role that music plays in my life. In times of sadness or hardship, I have often used the phrase, music saves, when asked how I'm doing and how I'm coping. Music transcends so much about our world, and I'm absolutely delighted to bring you a conversation about music within the Yoruba Christian communities of Lagos, Nigeria, My guest in this episode is Dr. Vicki Brennan. Vicki Brennan is an anthropologist who studies religion, sound, music, and urban space in Africa and the African diaspora. She is an associate professor of religion and the director of African studies at the University of Vermont. Her research is based on more than 15 years of field research in southwest Nigeria. She also has conducted research in Nigerian immigrant and African-American communities in the United States. She has a book, Singing Yoruba Christianity, which came out in 2018, which examines how members of the cherubim and seraphim church movements in Lagos, Nigeria, use music, dance, and other media as a means of producing moral community and reinforcing ethical values and modes of self-making. She is currently researching how claims to urban space by members of religious communities in Lagos, Nigeria, are produced, circulated, experienced, and contested through sound. She is also writing an ethnographic biography of a Nigerian-American visual artist. We talk about most of these topics in the episode, and we had a ton of fun. You can and should follow her on Twitter at Vicky Brennan. That's at V-I-C-K-I. B-R-E-N-N-A-N. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Vicki Brennan. Dr. Vicki Brennan, welcome to Classical Ideas.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It is wonderful to have you on the show, and I'm hoping you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit.
1: Okay, great. Well, um, hello to all the classical ideas listeners out there. I'm Vicki Brennan, and I'm a professor, associate professor of religion at the University of Vermont. I um, am actually trained as an anthropologist. I have a PhD in anthropology, and I um, research and teach about issues concerning um, sound, Uh, religious uh, theories of religion um, and religions in Africa and the African diaspora. I also have um, projects that I, new projects that I'm developing, which are about art and materiality, but I'm not sure I'm going to get to talk about those so much today.
0: (laughs) Well, you have such a wide range of interests. I mean, you mentioned religion, anthropology, sound, music, uh, also urban spaces in Africa and the diaspora. And You know, there are so many questions that I could ask you about how you got interested in each of those fields separately. Um, And then I'm also curious, like, how they merge together. Like, do you have any, like, uh, major academic stepping stones and turning points along the way for these different fields?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in many ways, this all comes together through my sort of academic biography, my, like, how I started training to, um, become a professor of religion, um, which includes no degrees in religion, actually, Hmm. um, something I like to, to tell my students. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so I, um, I went to college to study music and I was a clarinet performance major, but I did a Bachelor of Arts in Music because I thought that I wanted to be a music journalist. Mm -hmm. And, um, along the way i got shifted away from journalism or it was like you can do journalism but why don't you go do this graduate work in ethnomusicology mm. so i after i finished my ba i went and did a masters degree in ethnomusicology which is the it's the the study of music from cultural and social perspectives um it's it's like the anthropology of music um and so then as I was doing my degree in ethnomusicology, I decided that I was really interested in um, more of the questions that were central to anthropology. And so that's when I went to do a PhD in anthropology. And so it's really um, because of, you know, it's that sort of educational trajectory that led me to um well, I mean, there's also the story of how I got a job in religion when I always thought I would get a job in a music department. Mm. Um, and it's and it has to do with the topics that I study and as well as the interests that my particular department had in uh, allowing space for somebody who focused on anthropology and music and sound and Africa.
0: I'm really interested in your musical background because I'm a huge music fan myself. Um, what role does music play in your life? Like, how far back does this go for you?
1: Well, okay, so I started playing the clarinet at the age of seven. <laughs> um, I've been been—I've always been very interested in music. Um, and I, you know, like I said, I performed music throughout my childhood. I became very seriously into classical music um, in high school. Uh, performing in the um, the youth orchestra. I'm, a, I'm so I'm from Syracuse, uh, which isn't that far from you, Greg. I know. Right. Um, so I perf- I performed in the Syracuse Symphony Youth Orchestra. I was very active in the high school band scenes that are present in Central New York. Um, I mean in terms of like concert band. Um, but at the same time, I was also interested in other forms of musical practices. Um, so I, I think given what I've learned about you, Greg, this is also going to hit one of your interests, but I was very interested. I was very involved in the, the straight edge hardcore what? Punk scene in Syracuse. Um, yeah, like in the, Oh gosh, I'm going to give away how old I am, but it was like in the the late '80s, early '90s. Amazing. Um, yeah, and so I've always had these kinds of interests. Um, when I went to college, like I said, I decided I wanted to be a, a, a music journalist. I really got frustrated with playing classical music in the formals settings. Uh, like basically I didn't like playing in the orchestra. Mm. Um, and, uh, I really liked playing chamber music, but I wasn't quite that caliber of musician. And I, at that point, um, and no offense, but I just, I really didn't want (laughs) to be a teacher. You know, I didn't want to be
0: a music teacher. Right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So, um, so I, I decided that I wanted to think about what was music doing in people's lives? Why did they value it? Why do we place so much value on music? And that's when I started taking classes um, in anthropology and also in ethnomusicology. So um, at that point, my uh, attitude towards music kind of shifted. I still continued to perform during my uh, master's degree work. Um, I played my clarinet a little bit, but as part of my master's degree in ethnomusicology, you had to take music lessons in non-Western traditions. Um, and so, my very first semester of my master's degree, uh, I took—I uh, had to take music performance lessons with a Nigerian pop artist mm. named Ike Dairo. Um, and I'm going to talk a lot about him because he's also the reason why I came to my research topic. Um, so I studied, uh, I actually studied the, a button accordion with him. That's what I learned how to play from him, but playing it in the style of Nigerian pop music that he performed, which is called Juju. Um, and then I also did a year of uh, Okinawan folk music. I played. I learned how to play the shamisen. So I had these experiences in learning how to play in non-Western music traditions. Um, I still kept up my clarinet uh, practice a bit. Uh, I gave a recital right before I went to the field um, to do my my eth- you know my ethnographic research, my field research. Um, and I have to admit that since then I haven't really picked any of that up since then wow um, yeah so now i mostly think and write um and uh like theorize about music and sound but i'm not so much a practitioner anymore
0: amazing that is so cool so you sort of talked a little bit about how africa came into your life but you know what i'm wondering is why did you latch on to african music and nigerian music as a something that you wanted to academically pursue because you could have followed so many different paths what was it about nigeria and uh, africa that really sucked you in
1: yeah, so it really was the personal connection with Ik Dairo, um, the, the the visiting artist uh, who was at my master's program um, that first year of my graduate study. So Ik Dairo, um, for those who don't know him, which is most Americans, um, but if you say the name Ik Dairo to a Nigerian. Um, they will instantly recognize his name. He was an extremely popular musician, uh, in Nigeria during the sixties and seventies. Um, he might be compared to like the Elvis of Nigeria. Mm. He sold so many records for Decca West Africa that Queen Elizabeth knighted him. Um, most Nigerians would know, recognize his songs. Um, the day he died, the Nigerian radio stations all just played his music over and over and over. So I, st- I was fortunate to meet him um, that year. He was in residence at the University of Washington and to study music with him. Um, I At that point, I was kind of searching for a research pro- project um, to, again, uh, you know, examine the path not taken at that point I thought oh I'm gonna go back and study this this hardcore the straight edge hardcore Mm. scene because there was so much going on there about like gender and um, what I you know ethics and practice that were all bound up in musical experience Um, but my advisor convinced me that I could always go back and do that. Sure. Someday. And instead, um, nobody had studied the music in these churches. Um, and IK Dairo was actually a church leader in Nigeria. Um, so that's how it started. I, um, you know, I had this very uh, personal and close connection to this Nigerian pop musician who also was a church leader. And I developed a research project out of that. So I could basically go back, go to Nigeria um, to learn more about him and his life and his family and his church.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, I feel like I could just ask you a thousand questions right now <laughs> about like, like Youth of Today and Shelter yep. and 108 yep. and like all that stuff, but I won't because (laughs) um, that that is another time. Um, But that's so cool that you know all that stuff and that you appreciate such a wide variety of music. You know, something that I often struggle with is feeling like I listen to the same music over and over and that I don't purposefully expand myself, which is why whenever we were planning this interview, I asked you if you could send me just a bunch of songs that I could just listen to because I'm always seeking to try to break myself out of the molds of the stuff that I just listen to over and over and over. You know, like I listen to Propaganda like a thousand times times <laughs> um which i and i love them they're my favorite band but you know like the songs that you sent over um were just such a breath of fresh air for me because it's something brand new that i've never heard before even though it's like as you mentioned world famous in other parts of the world so that's Great. really cool
1: well so, i can send you like an afro pop mix so you can I'd expand love to. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah i'd love much. it um any musical suggestions are always welcome, especially if you're listening out there. Feel free to send me music, classical ideas at outlookcom Bombard me. Um, awesome. So, um, you are, the reason why we're talking today is not only because of your amazing work, but also because of your involvement in a fellowship um, with the Sacred Rights Public Scholarship and Religion Organization with um, Dr. Liz Buchar, Dr. Megan Goodwin, and the whole organization focuses on bringing scholarship to the greater public. And that's why I do this podcast because I can have people like you on have great conversations like this and then send it out into the world free of charge for anybody who wants to listen to it um, just out of sheer curiosity. And so I'm curious how you got interested in pursuing this opportunity with sacred rights to become a more public facing uh, scholar.
1: Yeah. So I, have become interested in the past um, few years with trying to come up with ways to tell the stories that I tell, but for different kinds of audiences and in different forms. Um, so, not just writing scholarly articles or ethnographic monographs, but to think about how um, the kinds of research that I do um, and the, like, basically the stories that I tell as an ethnographer might reach wider and wider audiences. Um I mean on a more personal note it, it this is something I w- I started thinking about uh I was talking to a family friend about my book and I know we're going to talk about my book yeah. in a little bit but my book was this big like burden that I carried for a long time because it took me a while to finish writing it. Um and uh she just said why why are you writing this book? Why don't you just write a novel? Mm. You know, and initially I was like, well, because I'm a scholar and anthropology is empirical and blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I really said oh right what kinds of stories would someone like her be interested in and how can I access those kinds of audiences so um sacred rights came onto my radar in part because of my colleague Elise Morgenstein first who um, is a- extremely close friends with um, Dr Megan Goodwin um, and so I said okay let me let me try this training out to see like what's involved in translating scholarly work to to public audiences and what kinds of venues are and formats are available to me to tell my stories to in different ways through different media and um to different audiences Mm. so yeah
0: and I think that's what we're doing right now wouldn't you say
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> I love it. So you mentioned your 2018 book called Singing Yoruba Christianity, about Christianity in Africa. Um, and as we've talked about off air, this is a topic that's very new to me, to this show. And I, whenever we started talking about this, I realized this was like a glaring uh, gap within the back catalog of the Classical Ideas podcast. So I'm, first of all, very grateful that we can begin to fill this immense gap. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Christianity's status, demographics, and rate of growth on the African continent are currently shaping that uh, way of life?
1: Yeah. so um the majority of people who live um on the African continent, practice either christianity or islam Um, that is something that is relatively recent like in the past hundred years um but that is nevertheless you know that's a fact that we need to acknowledge Uh, a lot of times people think about africa and they don't realize that but the largest um the the Africa, sub-Saharan Africa especially, is experiencing the largest growth in Islam and Christianity anywhere in the world. Mm. Since 1900, Christianity in Africa has uh, exploded. Christians in Africa have grown from, um, I'm just looking up some numbers here, from approximately 7 million Christians in 1900 to over 450 million today. And projections, this is done by the, the Pew uh, trust, um, doing research uh, on uh, religious adherence on the continent. So um, the projections are that the most Christians in the world will soon be on the African continent. So um, so this is this is something that has to be reckoned with, right? Um, it, that the real um, importance that these religions that originate outside of Africa play in the lives of Africans today. For me, one of the, the well, what what became the interesting thing was how did how did Yoruba people? This is a, a community of people who live in Southwest Nigeria. How did they come to be Christian, and how did Christianity come to be meaningful to them? And so that's really um, one of the the key dynamics of my research. And as I suggest or argue in my book, um, music played a really crucial role in the way that Christianity um, became Yoruba.
0: Interesting. Okay, so you mentioned to me in an email before that Christianity in Africa has aspects of syncretism and hybridity, and I'm curious if you can explain that a little bit. How does the local context matter to how Christianity is practiced in different parts of the continent?
1: Right. So so some of this has to do with this, the history of Christianity in Africa. So as I just said earlier, right, um, it's since 1900 that Christians have, you know, Christianity in Africa has experienced this exponential growth. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has a lot to do, as you might expect, with colonialism, Right, what is the big world historical event that's happening, especially that's impacting the the African continent in that period? Well, it's it's that's the age of African colonialism. So, um, Europe, there there, forms of Christianity does do exist on the continent prior to European colonialism, but the majority of African um, Christian practices are really impacted by that colonial encounter. Um, And especially by the way that missionization worked hand in hand with the political um, and imperialistic processes of colonialism. So um, what's interesting, what was interesting to me about the, the churches that I ended up studying was that they were They're churches that are known among scholars of Christianity in Africa as African independent churches. Mm -hmm. Um, So they broke away from those mission churches early in the 20th century. Um, Actually, interestingly, given what's going on in our world right now, it was um, in the context of – post World War One, the Spanish flu epidemic Mm. or pandemic um, and other factors that a large number of African Christians started experimenting with more um, what we now would call Pentecostal faith-based uh, he, uh, faith-based healing practices um, and other kinds of modes um, that were not necessarily allowed in uh, mission churches. Um, and for the Yoruba, the main mission churches were uh, Anglican churches from the UK because Nigeria was colonized by the British. Um, and so these African converts were looking for new kinds of, of ways to practice Christianity that would meet their immediate needs for, um, you know, seeking health, seeking protection from uh, external spiritual forces, um, witches, wizards, aspects of indigenous religion that were seen as potentially harmful, um, and so Christianity possibly offered a mode of protection from those spiritual forces, um, and also just like I said, seeking um, health and well-being. And so this is where this aspect of syncretism and hybridity comes in, where a certain kind of Yoruba worldview when it comes to what religion is and what religion does uh, integrates or mixes in with um Christian practices, Christian uh, ideas, uh, Christian modes of being, um, and so that's a big part of what these African independent churches do. Is that they, um, especially in the the early part of the 20th century, but through much, you know, up until about the the 1980s, um, they were uh, offering these very dynamic worship sessions, um, prayer sessions, healing sessions in which people could improve their lives, could seek health and well um, and could work to protect themselves from, uh, from their enemies, both spiritual as well as physical.
0: Mm, Interesting. Well, and one of the things that I was thinking of whenever we were planning our conversation was, uh, You know who the Yoruba are, because like if you read certain you know like big trade books about world religions, oftentimes there will be like a chapter just titled Yoruba. So there's like all these like indigenous practices that are found within the region that are specific. But um, so whenever I was reading uh, Yoruba Christianity, I was thinking about it in terms of like an almost like an interfaith play. And so I was having a mistaken notion about what your work was about um, because of some of my own misconceptions and gaps in knowledge about what religion is like in the African continent.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so um, the Yoruba are one of the three largest ethnic groups in Nigeria. Um, Nigeria is the most populous uh, country on the African uh, continent. Like, they're so, you know, the the, the, the largest uh, population. Um, and the Yoruba are one of the three largest ethnic groups. Um, and um, they had their culture, religion, language, artistic practice had this really big impact, um, on, uh, black religions more generally because of the slave trade. Um, many, uh, enslaved Africans were taken from, um, Southwest Nigeria because of Yoruba, um, imperial politics of, of their own. Um, and so in places like Cuba, Brazil, um, even to some extent, Haiti, right? Yoruba religions become uh, part of these African diasporic practices of Santeria or Candomblé or Vodun and others, Orisha and Trinidad and T- Tobago, etc. So, so that's part of the reason why in these world religion textbooks, Yoruba are often given. Um, you know, they're often covered. Um, but what happens back home? Uh, in Nigeria, well, that's actually a really complicated and interesting mix because you not only have um, Yoruba people who have been missionized and converted to Anglicanism anglicism or to 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 become Baptist. There are some American missionaries in the southwest part of Nigeria as well. Um, but you have um, people returning from, cuba or brazil who have bought their slavery and are coming back home mm. right and bringing new practices and then you also have um there basically were people who were on slave ships on their way to the new world but intercepted by the british anti anti-slavery patrols because britain outlawed slavery at some point um and so they were basically like these slave ships are kept or are, are stopped by the british all of The 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 enslaved people on board are offloaded in Sierra Leone and they're they're sort of mass converted to Christianity and Mm -hmm. they return home. And so you have this really interesting mix of of people who have this really complicated um, relationship towards indigenous religion, um, who have who have been converted to Christianity who are doing the work of translating the Bible into Yoruba and translating Christian practices for new Yoruba converts, like seeking new Yoruba converts. And so it's like out of that mix that the churches that I ended up doing my research with um, emerged. And um, so if you want to think about, right, it's not, it's, I mean, it's, there's still, very much Christian churches, mm-hmm. um, but they translate Christianity through the needs and the impulses of of Yoruba communities. Mm. So perhaps one of the, well, other than music, which is what I talk about in my book, right? Music is one yeah. of the key modes through which Christianity gets made Yoruba and through which the Yoruba come to experience. To experience and live Christianity, um, but the other um, sort of major practice that really um, sort of integrates Yoruba ideas about religiosity into Christianity is the the, the practice of of church prophets. Um, so there's uh, a, a sort of whole prophet system within the church where, um, like, it's based on the biblical prophets like Daniel, right? But um, these are prophets who are, you know, live among us, who can sort of help you to divine your problem through communication with God, um, to receive divine messages from God that can help guide um, everyday practice in the now, right? And and so the prophets play a really important role, and that's something that's not as prevalent in um, white Protestant Christianity, or even Anglican, the form, you know, Anglican Protestant Protestantism.
0: <laughs> that's interesting. So like, yeah. you know, and I am I am interested in the basic belief structures um, and practices of what it means to be Yoruba Christian. So would that living prophet thing be like one of the most major distinctions between if you compare and contrast different uh, Christianity dom- denominations around the world?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I would say that's something that's very distinctive to the churches that I um I worked with, um, in Nigeria, the, the, the prevalence of the prophets, though, I would also say like one of the things that I'm very careful about in writing my book and writing about these churches is to insist that all of these things, you know, for them, these are all Christian practices, Mm. right? They're very clear about not practicing indigenous religions. Um, you know, they, they've converted, um, in many of them now, especially in like the last 30 years, um, for reasons we can talk about later, have adopted some of the language of, of uh, being born again. Right. Right. But it's about rejecting your past and accepting this new religion. Um, but then it's also about changing the religion to make it better suit your sort of immediate spiritual and physical needs. And so, yeah, so prophecy is a big part of it. Um, but also it's a, for as I discuss in the book, it's about the kind of um, expressive, affective, emotional, and performance-based kinds of experiences of worship that were not encouraged by mission churches, um, but that were seen as necessary in order to really feel one's connection to God and to one's community. Mm-hmm. And so that's where music and dance come in. Um, so so just, interesting. The other major thing, and this is, I, if I don't say this, <laughs> um, any Nigerian listeners is going to scold me for not knowing what I'm talking about, but the other real major distinction of these churches um, that I uh, researched for my book, so that's the it's the Cherubim and Seraphim Movement Church, um, but Cherubim and Seraphim refers to a group of these African independent churches that uh, identify themselves as linked to a particular founder. Um, But they all wear uh, white praying gowns, a white garment Mm -hmm. um, to pray in. Um, And so that's another pretty distinct um, practice of these churches, right? That isn't necessarily Yoruba, though certain Yoruba ideas about the symbolism of whiteness and the value of clothing the body in white cloth does get translated into their Christian practices.
0: Uh, and, you know, I was thinking about a conversation I had with my dear friend David Ampanza about this a couple years ago, and he was very, very clear and painstaking to me in his detail about how these movements are rejecting the indigenous practices and how that's such a big deal.
1: Yeah, and I that's why I'm trying to be very careful here. To, I mean, that's part of... Why I'm trying to be careful here, but also why I'm saying like this is Yoruba Christianity, yeah, and both sides of that are really important. Um, there, you know, I'll, I think we'll talk a, a a little bit later about the way that Pentecostalism has exploded on the continent in the past like 25 to 30 years, um, and the churches that I studied, which are kind of earlier Pentecostal shift and christianity in sub-saharan africa or in west africa specifically um they have come under a lot of criticism by pentecostals for not being proper christians Mm. um and i think you know that debate is actually speaking to sort of broader dynamics of what is religion doing in these spaces and how are people using religion to negotiate new kinds of conflicts and crises um, that they experience um but um I I want, you know, by calling this Yoruba Christianity, it is very much a Christian church.
0: Gotcha. And you mentioned earlier uh, cherubim and seraphim church movements. Are these separate movements?
1: Yeah. So the cherubim and seraphim, um, there's, I would say there's six, seven, maybe nine different kinds of, of, cherubim and seraphim groups okay the cherubim and seraphim church movement is one of those groups
0: ah gotcha
1: yeah but there's like the eternal and sacred order of cherubim and seraphim there's there's a few others the agbo jesus cherubim and seraphim um and each of them identify themselves in relationship to a unique founder moses Orimolade. But they also, they they have slightly different kinds of organizational structures or practices. Um, and there actually is also a cherubim and seraphim unification movement that I mm. write about a little bit in the conclusion of the book, where they're like, oh, no, we just need to become one, um, which is very much a Christian kind of uh, tendency towards, like, fracturing and then emphasizing unity mm. uh,
0: yeah. Well, and one of the things that so I'm I'm getting the sense here that all this is extremely sensory. So I'm wondering if you can paint a yeah. picture for the listener, what would we all see, hear, smell, etc. Mm-hmm. if we were to attend one of these church services?
1: Yeah. So the the as you say it's very sensory um you'd enter if you enter into the compound in which a church is located um and i should note that the these compounds range the the church where i ended up um spending most of my time during my field work that i worked with most closely is the cherubim and seraphim church movement ionio which is in lagos nigeria and it's a very very big church um It's, um, I would say when I went there, I went every Sunday for approximately 18 months. um, There would be thousands of people um, there worshiping. Um, And they have different, they had different kind of uh, congregations within the compound. But you'd enter the compound and you would just be met with these throngs of people wearing their white prayer gowns. Um, So these are white robes that cover you from your neck down to your feet, like to your ankles. Mm. Um, Women will be wearing a a white cap on their heads, uh, covering their hair with their hair tucked in. Um, And then the other distinctive feature of people's appearance is that you don't wear shoes when you enter into the church. So um, people all in white, taking their shoes off, rushing into the church. You would also be met with... um, especially at the Ionio church, a a wall of sound. Mm. Um, there's loudspeakers all around the church compound that are, that's broadcasting what's happening inside. And the church choir, um, would be, you know, the church would start with at least an hour of singing and dancing. So, um, this is a large choir with, you know, at least a hundred different voices, um, men and women, uh, three or four electric guitars, bass guitar, a drum kit, an organ, uh, a set of, of talking drummers playing, um, and congas, right? So a full uh, full wall of sound, of singing, of music, um, and of dancing. Um, and that, you know, in addition to that, you'd have the things like, um, well, the heat of Lagos, Lagos is a tropical city. Um, the humidity, uh, the incense that's used inside the church, right? And so it's part of what happens when people go to church each Sunday to participate in um, worship services. Is this like full engagement of all the senses and the use of of music specifically to help connect people um, to? this worship space, and to all the people together worshiping, and then ideally to God.
0: That is so amazing. Well, and you write in the book that the cherubim and seraphim church movements use music and dance as a means of producing a moral uh, community, and how that, that reinforces ethical values amidst corruption surrounding Mm -hmm. them. And I'm curious if you can elaborate a little bit about how music serves as building a moral community and how music is moral and how does it reinforce morals to this particular group?
1: Yeah. So, so just a little nerdy, um, religious scholar kind of thing, but with moral, (laughs) with moral community, I'm pointing to Durkheim and sort of Durkheimian ideas about the way that religion, uh, sort of reinforces Community values and 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 constructs um, uh, sociality, right? Uh, a sort of embodied form of sociality via ritual. <laughs> um, I'm also drawing on the idea about ethical values, right? So trying to, sorry, I'll be a little nerdy again, it's but totally trying to fine. sort of marry that Durkheimian sociological uh, uh, interpretation of religious practice with a kind of more Asadian disciplinary, um, practices, right. That by allowing one's body, uh, To be engaged in certain kinds of bodily practices, one remakes the self in line with the values of that community. Um, And so what I look at in the book are the ways that music is used to create an ideal kind of person through cherubim and seraphim worship practices, but also through things like choir rehearsal or Bible study classes um, or other modes of engagement with other members of the church so that you um, worship in the right way and by doing so become the right kind of person, a person who's not corrupt, a person who uh, shares certain kinds of social values with other members of your community who looks out for each other Um, and this is all standing in sort of relationship to what's happening in Nigeria Uh, well during the time of my research which was the early 2000s the is a moment of democratic transition Um, so there's a lot of kind of political and economic possibility but people were still experiencing a lot of insecurity.
0: Mm. So is this, a, is talking about the, the moral community, is this a direct critique of greater, the greater Lagos area in any way? Um,
1: well, I think that it's, it's. I wouldn't say it's a direct critique. I think that what they're saying is that there's a lot of stuff out there in Lagos that one could um, could get one into trouble mm. right that one can experience poverty one can experience addiction um, one can uh, experience all these temptations because of poverty um, that would lead you to not to you know to steal from your neighbor, for example, or to use some sort of money, magic to steal to 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 harm someone that you're jealous of right which is uh, a sort of common uh sort of west african uh kind of spiritual material uh idea that swirls around um if anybody if you if you're interested in seeing it watch any nollywood film the nollywood is the like third largest film industry in the world. It might even be second now. I don't know. Um, it might be bigger than Hollywood. Um, the, these are the themes that are taken up in these Nolly, Nollywood films. Excellent. Um, so yeah, so the church is like by coming to church every Sunday by singing the same song together and doing it correctly, one can ensure that one isn't part of those corrupt uh, you know, harmful practices out there.
0: Okay, gotcha. Um, yeah. You know, and you also mention in the book that singing the same songs in church mm-hmm. together as a group can create uh, what in your what in the Yoruba community is known as a good life. And there's a specific term associated with that in the book that I'm not even going to try. I just want you to pronounce. Um, I'm you,
1: guessing alafia. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell me mm-hmm. about
0: this Yoruba term for good life and what that means within the concept of this church?
1: Yeah. I mean alafia is a great it's a great world word and it's not um I'm not a uh a sort of linguist by any means and my yoruba is pretty basic uh, especially now that I it's been a long time since I've had an extended uh stay in Nigeria but alafia generally refers to a state of of complete well-being it's peace it's health it's happiness um and uh, it's, you'll, I mean, it, it's common to, you know, you'll find it in Yoruba indigenous practices. Um, they'll talk about alafia and some of the diasporic practices as well. But it's really the sort of state you aspire to be. I mean, a common Yoruba greeting, the way that you would um, uh, greet somebody if you just were seeing them for the day is she ni, which means, are you, do you have do you have a lafia do you have well-being yeah. is everything okay um and uh so this is this is this good life this ideal um is what the sort of participation in church worship strives for um to you know recognizing the reality of the world that it's really hard to achieve a Lafayette when you've been in, you know, you to get to work, you have to sit in traffic for three hours, that there's a risk of armed robbers on the road that might steal your car. Or if you're on a bus, your personal property might be stolen, or your body might be harmed right and so this is about a a kind of religious um and very embodied way of maintaining that sense of well-being in a good life
0: very cool philosophy now Mm -hmm. i want to spend a little bit more time together in the time that we have left talking about a book that i know that you're completing right now about commercially recorded yoruba gospel music in nigeria which is so cool um Mm -hmm. so this industry dates back to what the 1920s
1: well, so technically, I um, I don't think any uh, – na- so the recordings made by J.J. J. Ransom Kuti were made in the 1920s. Um, most people wouldn't call him a gospel musician. They would say, oh, the gospel music industry really starts in the late 60s when mm. the Nigerian music industry really takes off. Um, but what I'm interested in in those J.J. J. Ransom Kuti recordings are that these are the – the, some of the first recordings of Yoruba Christian singing that were made, mm. right? And what happens when uh, Christian songs get taken up into this media, right? Gets reproduced in a way that isn't necessarily uh, like a hymn book, which allows for a congregation to reproduce the hymn for themselves. But this is a way for you to listen to Christian songs separate from the spaces of worship or your own performance of the song. And so that's um, that's where uh, my interest in J.J. Ransom Cootie comes from. Um, But really, the industry really starts picking up in the 1960s.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about the archival research that you've been doing to prepare this new book?
1: Yeah, so the... um, the, the archival research that I did uh, was mainly on the Ransom Cootie recordings. Um, and I think I mentioned to you in yeah. our correspondence that uh, when I wanted to hear them, I actually had to go to the British Library. And now they're all there on YouTube. Yeah. So if you want to hear them, you can just go to YouTube, which is just amazing. But I actually remember, so I was in the British Library um, listening to the recordings, and you had to you know, request them to be played. They were still... I think on some reel to reel um, recordings or something. And I had pulled all of, I had requested to have pulled all of these Yoruba hymn books that the British library has in their collection. So I was just, you know, these were commercially printed hymn books dating back to like the 19, from 1900 to about 1930. Um, And I was just thumbing through them. And then I realized as I was listening to one of the songs that I was looking at this song in the hymn book. So I, found the the hymns actually printed um for uh, circulation to literate yoruba christians in lagos in the early 1900s as i was listening to jj ransom cootie's mm. recordings that were made in the uk
0: amazing well and yeah. i was listening to, to uh JJ Ransom Cootie's work also on, on an album called Over There Sounds and Images from Black Europe. Yeah. And this song was close to what I expected from worship music. Like it didn't like, you know, um it, it kind of sounded it sounded like it felt like I was listening to church music, gospel music. But then I listened to a song that you also sent over, which you said was one of the most popular songs. I believe it's called Okay Mimo.
1: Okay, yeah. So the song is actually uh Jesu Kosani Kang Uh, Which is from the album "Okay Mimo." Gotcha. Which is the best-selling album produced by the Cherubim and Seraphim Ionio Church, the one where I ended up doing my research. So they, um, that church, uh, has more than now. It's like more than thirty commercial recordings of their own choir that they um, that have been very successful. Um, But "Okay Mimo" is the one that um, that was their. by far, their most popular album and that song. Everybody will know that song. Well, if I tell a Nigerian person I'm or a Yoruba person I'm researching that church, they'll start singing "Lay Jesu."
0: <laughs> I mean, it's so dancey. You know, it's almost like it's yep. got. It feels like it has like a lot of uh, Caribbean influence as well. It feels like there's some reggae tones in there. Um, yep. Can you tell me a little bit about the range of sounds like that we would hear if we're listening to this Yoruba Christian music? Because <clears throat> this is like so fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, so that's part of what I write about um, in the, well, what I am writing about (laughs) in the gospel music book. The, uh, right, so the J.J. Ransom Cootie, as you noted, right, that's voice and piano. Mm -hmm. And he's very much writing Yoruba Christian songs in a kind of hymn like mode, right? They sound like Christian songs. Yeah. Um, Part of, What happens in the independent churches and in the development of Yoruba Christianity over the 20th century is that different kinds of musical styles and genres get integrated. And so, for example, the cherubim and seraphim are very well known for allowing um, certain kinds of Yoruba drums to be used during church worship. I think I mentioned that um, when I was discussing the sensory experience of worship, that the talking drum would be used. And I do want to note that it's n- there's a variety of Yoruba talking drums. This is a particular um Yoruba, this is a particular drum. It's called the Gangan. This is more technical <laughs> maybe than I need to get. Totally but, fine. Go for the, it. there's right. The the some of the talking drums will be too spiritually powerful, like too powerfully connected to Yoruba indigenous religion to be used in church. Mm. But the Gangan has become more integrated into Christian practice and it still can speak. The Yoruba language. Um, Yoruba is a tonal language, and so there's a lot of drum, drum language uh, continuum uh, that goes on. Um, and so they started integrating Yoruba drums into worship, and then also using um, a lot of dancing and uh, sort of, like you said, more diasporic musical forms. I mean, this is this is part of what's happening in Lagos, in you know the the first part of the 20th century. Uh, as freed slaves from Cuba are returning, freed slaves from Brazil, um, the returnees from Sierra Leone, right? There's this really interesting cultural mix that's producing new dynamic forms of musical practice, right? You have like recordings of Afro-Cuban drumming that were made in Cuba by descendants of, of enslaved Yoruba people in Cuba those recordings come back to Nigeria and then shape new modes of music, pr- musical practice and, and, and get integrated into the churches in certain kinds of ways. Um, so one of the things that I've been looking at in the gospel music book is how gospel music, the genres that are acceptable um, to use as gospel music to praise the Christian God expands. Mm. Um and so, one of the chapters, for example, I think this was one of the other recordings I sent you. Um, one of my chapters is about a musician named Shemule Jesu, who took a genre of music called Shemule, which is associated with a majority Muslim Yoruba community um, in a particular region of Yoruba land. Um, so it's this is like a Muslim, uh, Muslim community style of music that actually drew on a religious genre to turn into a secular genre that a Muslim community would sing. So the the, the secular version has kind of like obscene jokes, sexual jokes <laughs> in it. And then she took that genre and turned it into gospel music. And so, and she's fabulously po- uh, popular. Shemalee Jesu. She's, I mean, she's she's a very popular uh, contemporary, Yoruba gospel musician. And so, part of what is going on in this music industry is all of these genres are out there. They get translated into uh, uh, translated and made available for Christian um, Christian experience um, and entertainment, really.
0: I mean, your your passion for this subject is just so inspiring. I just love it. And, okay, you know, I hope
1: I, I'm not getting into too no, much
0: detail. <laughs> and, and you know, when I put on okay the OK Memo album, I was really blown away by how much I loved it. You know, yeah. I absolutely loved it. I was like, oh, my gosh, I could feel he, hear a little bit of Jimmy Cliff in here. I can hear a little bit of Bob Marley in here. Like, I, I was, like, just loving it when I was listening to it. And I'll put a, a link to that song in the show notes as well. So if anybody's listening to this and you want to hear the OK Memo record, I'll put a link to it in the show notes down below. Um, so let's move continents really quick. Um, okay. You've also worked with um, a Yor- Yoruba Christian organization based in the United States. What are they called? Asaf's of Seraph? Yep. Awesome. So, um, you know, religious practice tends to adapt to local culture, as we all know. Uh, has Yoruba Christianity in the U.S. changed at all to make it unique from Nigerian Yoruba Christianity?
1: Yeah. So this is really interesting because that that was actually the question that my whole dissertation research started with. I had planned to do more research with the Yoruba um, Christian, the cherubim and seraphim churches here in the US and looking at how they maintained their connection back to Nigeria. So it was like a new African diaspora um, issue. And then I ended up just realizing that I had so much to learn about Nigerian about Nigeria, about Yoruba, about Yoruba Christianity, that I ended up spending, you know, that like I said, eighteen months for my dissertation research, just living in Lagos and um, going to church a lot and church choir practice, Bible study. <laughs> wow. But a lot of other things, you know, I, I had a lot of fun in Lagos. You were too. embedded. I, yeah, I was embedded. Um and so one of the things that I did learn through that was that, um, you know, they, there were groups of, uh, you know, church members based here in the U S and in fact, um, a number of the musicians that you hear on that. Okemimo Mimo album, uh, are, are actually based here in the U S now they, they left Nigeria. Oh, I'm, I can't remember the exact date, but it was in the late nineties, um, to, to, do a kind of evangelical, um, outreach to Nigerian American communities here, Yoruba American communities in the U S. Um, and many of them ended up, uh, staying in the U S rather than returning back to Nigeria. Um, so in fact, the, the, choir the director of the choir of the ionio church in lagos the overall choir director actually lives in new york city right now hmm. yeah so the asaph of seraph is uh so this the there's cherubim and seraphim uh, members of the church living across the united states um often in very um Sort of smaller, isolated communities. Though so there are large Nigerian American communities in places like Houston or New York City, um, but uh, the Asos of Seraph was envisioned as this kind of yearly um, reunion and spiritual revival—you know, religious revival—that members of the church could come together once a year to. Re- to sort of reconnect, um, with each other and with the, the church. And, um, so they meet in different locations in the U S each year. Uh, they did have one summer where they actually met in Lagos. Um, and it's a way of reconnecting with, um, the, the religious practices that they, you know, that they have, they, they engage in, in Nigeria, but that are more limited here. Um, now you asked about how they adapted to local culture here in the U S and it's been interesting to, to trace some of that. Um, so one thing is that, uh, a lot more English is used, uh, in the U S though, to be perfectly fair, the churches in Lagos also, um, you know they were primarily in Yoruba, but they would feature a lot of English translation. Um, and there was actually an English chapel where the entire service was in English in at the in the church compound in Lagos. But here in the U.S., there's a lot more English. Um, even though some members of the Asaf's or of these particular congregations in places like New Jersey or Boston will say, "Oh, but it it just doesn't sound the same if it's not in Yoruba." Um, there's a church in Chicago that has stopped wearing the white prayer gown. Um, which is a little bit controversial within the group. Um, and part of what I'm interested in is like tracing those controversies and who thinks it's controversial and why, and how are people justifying it and why. Um, and so that's still a kind of source of disagreement. So they'll wear the white program for certain things, but not for all things. And so um, at the last ASAFS convention, I attended um, which I think was two years ago in Chicago. That group was the host, and they didn't wear their prayer gown through the whole
0: revival. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and there, there's a little bit of internal diversity for you within okay. this one organization. Yeah. Um, do you have a timeline for this uh, this gospel book about uh, gospel, comm- commercially recorded gospel music in Nigeria?
1: <laughs> well, so this, this is... Um... You know, I think I mentioned that I, I kind of take a long time to... I'm, I'm a slow writer and a I slow thinker. I am too. Thinker.
0: I hear you. It's so painful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I had originally... I was planning to go to Nigeria next month to do a little bit more research. I've been um, doing... I've been really interested in the way that gospel musicians right now are using Instagram um, and other forms of social media to reach their audiences. Um, I was, I actually interviewed one of the, she's like the biggest Yoruba gospel musicians right now, um, Tope Alabi. I interviewed her last summer at her house and she had her, she live streamed me, she live streamed the whole Instagram. Interview on her Instagram, so
0: <laughs> that's fantastic.
1: So I, I was like, "This is fascinating, right? This is about like self-making and uh, using social media to 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 promote this kind of self and to promote her music as well." Um, so I I hope to go back to do some more research, but now with COVID, I'm I'm not able to travel, and I'm not sure when I'll be able to travel next. So I think I need to say, you know. Vicki, you have enough data now, it's time to start writing. And I would like, I have half of the chapters done. um, And the other half, I have the materials. And I think I can, you know, I would love to get it done in the next uh, year.
0: Well, in the spirit of public scholarship, you know, tying back to your sacred rights fellowship, Um, where can people find you if they want to follow you, know more about your work? Because you cover such a, an interesting range of topics that I think that a lot of people may find, uh, they want to know more about what you do.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, so I, um, I am on Twitter. Um, it's at Vicky Brennan. That's V-I-C-K-I-B-R-E-N-N-A-N. Um, and I... I don't, I'm not the most active Twitter user, but I'm there and I'm often um, tweeting out things. Um, And then the sacred rights uh, website uh, keeps an update of what um, all of the, the fellows have been producing. So I think that would be another good place
0: to look. Fantastic. Well, Doctor Vicki Bryan, this has been such a fantastic, informative, detailed, wide-ranging conversation. <laughs> I'm very grateful to you for your time, and your new microphone sounds amazing, which I think the listeners <laughs> will agree on. Um, so, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas and having a great time with me today.
1: Thanks for having me. This was a this was a great conversation, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'm hoping I'll I'll come back again. We can talk about some of my other projects. <laughs>
0: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com.